Hey, welcome to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Nice to be here this morning and great worship session and great time of spending communion together. Now, this week we're starting part two of Sowing the Seed series. Our overall vision for this year is growth. And so we've had preparing the soil and as we know, you prepare soil before planting. Now it's time to start sowing seeds. And we looked at the parable of the sower last week and we'll be, we'll, what type of soil will we be? One where the seed gets thrown out and then Satan just takes it away. Will we be the soil where you know, it gets thrown there, kind of springs up quickly, but because it doesn't have root, it dies away quickly? Will it be the soil where it's full of weeds and thistles that sucked out? Or will it be the soil that produces a harvest at 30, 60, or 100 fold? And so tying in with that is that this vision of the kingdom the vision of the kingdom is that it will grow. And it may start off as something really, really small and insignificant, but it will produce a harvest. A harvest that is perhaps a little bit unexpected, not what we would anticipate. And so part of that being part of the harvest means that there needs to be workers. Workers for the kingdom. I want to tell you a story. In 2014, Rachel and I went on a mission trip to what's called a closed access country in Southeast Asia. Now, closed access countries are countries where you cannot openly proclaim Jesus. In this country, I would regularly get updates on pastors who'd been put in prison and Christians who were thrown out of their jobs in their villages. Being a Christian was illegal in this country. So to get around it, there was a pastor and his wife and another missionary. They started uh, a center. And I think God brought Rachel and I to this place because in many ways I see parallels between what was started in this closed access country and here in Sydney, Dural. And so this center, it was different. It wasn't a sports center, but it was a bakery taught sewing to women and had a cafe and also had like drug rehabilitation programs for kids. And so what they would do is, is that they would, and oh, now I think too, was English centre. So it was all these things in one. So English centre, bakery, sewing centre, drug rehabilitation, all these things. And what they would do is they would use that to point people to Jesus. What I found interesting, there were times where they would tell us, they go, you cannot say anything about God here. But there were other times where they're like, yeah, you can say whatever you want here. And what was really cool was that this, as this business operated, each Sunday they would all gather together and worship church. It wasn't super, super secret, but because it was a business and not a religious building, they could do it. So I see here the centre is like. Uh, maybe Christianity isn't illegal in Australia yet, but we live in a post-Christian society. I was looking at some research from Barna, their Christian research sort of guys in the States, and about 
a third of Americans don't think the church or pastors have anything to say about societal issues. There is now this sort of expectation that the church hasn't got anything to offer to society at all. Well, actually, Scripture tells us that God's word has lots and lots to offer. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of salvation to transform and change people's lives. And friends, that's what we've been called to do. Rick Warren in the famous Shape series, he says, We are saved to serve saved to serve. I want to unpack that a bit more, that we're not just saved to serve here on a Sunday morning, we're saved to serve with our lives as a living sacrifice before God. And it's no accident, it was with Murray Redfrow from Genesis chapter 1, that the Apostle Paul, with this idea of human beings made in the image of God, he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this image of the body, the church is a body. And he says here, just as a very famous words, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And he goes on in verse 27, he says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you are part of it. That's who we are. One body, many different parts of Jesus. This morning, we're going to go back to creation and unpack what does it mean to use our spiritual gifts? What does it mean to actually be formed in the image of God? And it's probably some of the deepest, most difficult parts of Scripture, I must admit. You can read books and books and books on this. What is man? Here you go, Genesis 1.26, it tells us, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. And over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole, all, all, the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and it was good. Not just good, very good. Now let's take another step backwards. At the beginning of creation, we're told that the world is a place of deep waters. The Hebrew word is tohu, 
And to who can mean something like chaos, wilderness, waters? It has all these different words around them, but kind of the central theme is to who is a place where there is no life. There is chaos. There is disorder. And so what does God do? God creates a world that is full of life and order. And if you read through Genesis 1, you begin to notice a bit of a pattern. God speaks, things happen. But God also names things. If you notice that. Now here what God is doing, when he says he's going to create mankind in, in our image, in our likeness, and so they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over all the animals. Now, there's all these different theories about what it means to be created in the image of God. But one of the, the best things from, from we can draw from the text, one of the better readings, is that some way human beings reflect God's creative and authoritative purposes. Now, if God names, you know, calls day and night, light and day, sea and sky. But it's interesting, when humans are made, do you know who has the privilege to name the animals? Who is it? It's the man. It's Adam. So there's this element here that humans are mirroring God somehow. In fact, the word image, selam, it actually couldn't be translated as idol. In fact, it's sometimes used in the Old Testament to describe the idols that the Israelites made, that other nations worshipped. And so what would happen in the ancient world is that you would put a selam, an idol, an image in a temple, and you would go in that temple and you'd see this image and go, hey, this is the God that we're meant to worship. These are the characteristics of this God. I know this by looking at this image that is here in this temple. Also, two kings would do this. They would build a statue of themselves. And because they had no way to communicate like we do today, how would you know you're in the king's empire? They would put statues around of this king. And you look at this statue and go, that statue is of this king. And I know this king is wicked, or this king is good. Therefore, this, this image here is representative of who this king is meant to be like, or who this God is meant to be like. It's no accident, friends, that God says that we are not to worship any idol or image, because we are that. When we look around and see other humans, we reflect God's image. That's what his temple is meant to be full of. That's what his earth is full of. People who reflect God's image. So our spiritual gifts reflect God in some way. Now, if you read through Scripture, now there, obviously there's some continuity and discontinuity. Obviously, we're creatures of the dirt and God is God and all-powerful being. But you can notice some similarities between us and God. Let's just take Genesis 1 to 3. We learn that God is a creator and people have been made with creative artistic gifts. You know that God is a ruler. Human beings were created to rule and to subdue the earth. 
we know that God speaks. People speak. So I see there's these similarities between us and God. And so what God's intention was, was for Adam and Eve, was that they would spread out Eden. And we're told here in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, this is some pretty, pretty tricky theology here to understand. When we read in Genesis chapter 1, we're told the world is very good, yes? Then we read Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, we know Adam and Eve are in this garden and it's perfect, but then they get kicked out of the garden and what's outside the garden? What, what do we know is part of the curse? Pardon? Barren land, yeah. And so it seems to be somehow in this, this tension that God's world is very good. And, and good can, it's like means like something good, like, you know, you're a good person. Also means functional. It's good for function. Now, humans are in Eden, but outside of Eden... There's this sort of chaos because we know that they can't go back inside the garden once they sin. And so what commentators suggest is that Eden is meant to spread out, spread out the borders of Eden. For some reason, and we just don't know, it's part of God's sovereign will, is that even though he is all-powerful, he's given human beings the right to rule over the earth to make his purposes known through these two humans and that they will be fruitful and multiply and spread out. That as they serve and work in this garden, they'll spread it out across the whole earth. That's part of what it means to be in the image of God, to be working for his purposes. But as we know humans stuff that up. And so then God has to enact a new plan of salvation. He does it through the children of Abraham. And the children of Abraham, the Israelites, when they live in the promised land, that becomes like a new Eden. The nations around them are meant to see that, hey, this is what it's like when you follow Israel's God. These are good things. When you follow his commandments, Good things happen. And there's a great, great case in point. When the Israelites are first saved and Moses is up in the mountain, what's the first thing they do when Moses is up there for 40 days? What do they do? They take off their rings, take off their jewellery, and they build what? They build an idol. They build a selim. They start worshipping calves. Disorder is the natural state. See, that's what God has been doing from the beginning. He's been taking disorder, speaking, and bringing order. And as humans made in the image of God, it's our responsibility to ensure that order continues. God just doesn't give rules because he's like a school principal that likes to make your life miserable. He wants to make life complete and whole. It's why there's divisions between the sea and the land. As we all notice, if there is a breach in these boundaries, chaos happens. If there's too much water and there's flooding, that's a disaster. If there's too much rain in the sky and it comes down, that's a disaster. 
life is meant to be ordered. This is what God has done. And in fact, Adam and Eva, it's not used in, in Genesis, but they're functionally kings and queens and priests. And that word there in Genesis 2.15 where it says there, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Also could be translated as to guard and to serve it. The exact same words used of the priest in the tabernacle and temple. They're the guarded and to serve it. Essentially their role was to protect this sacred space. Adam and Eve were called to rule over the animals. Instead, who do they listen to in Genesis 3? They listen to the serpent. They usurp, usurp the authority. Animals are meant to be here at the bottom. And instead, now the serpent has come at the top. And so, with God's plan of salvation culminating in Jesus Christ, we, as the church, now take on that role. We are now the priests and kings and queens, the ones to go out and to rule and to subdue the earth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Those words that Peter quotes there, they're the words that Yahweh speaks over the Israelites back in Exodus. And now with Jesus Christ's arrival, his death and resurrection and his rule and reign, now we as the church, we continue that mandate. We are the children of Abraham. We are descendants. We are fulfillments of that promise. So we are now the chosen people, a royal priesthood. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that means we're meant to look like Jesus more and more each day. He is the perfect embodiment of the image of God. One of the cool things I love about Scripture is that there's these themes that pop up again and again. And when you start to notice them as you read through the Old Testament, you'll say, oh, yeah, I can kind of see this happening. And one of these themes is this sort of judgment slash disorder sort of beginning. And then there's salvation, which leads to this act of creation and renewal. And you sort of see it come up time and time again, this sort of chaos Judgment, disorder, act of salvation which changes creation and then it sort of just keeps on happening again and again. We can see it perfectly in the Exodus. The Israelites are there in slavery. God does something. He brings salvation which creates the world, which changes the world, which brings a new creative act, which changes the world around us. It's like this little foretaste of Eden to come. And friends, we as the church, as in the parable of Sower that was, we explored last week, we are meant to be the ones that are ensuring this harvest is happening, that society around us is being transformed, that in every suburb where there is a Christian community, you're meant to think 
this is like a little Eden. This is a foretaste of the kingdom to come. This is part of that mandate which God had given to Adam and Eve from the very beginning. We'll rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. We're called to rule and to subdue the world around us. And Jesus may not use that language, but in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, which we all have heard time and time again, it's that reminder, Jesus Christ has all authority on heaven and the earth. And so when we go and make disciples... Not just transforming a person so they can just their soul can whisk away into heaven. We transform people's lives here and now so that they can spread Eden on this earth around us. That is what the church is meant to do. That is what it means to be saved, to serve, to see this wonderful transformation. But unfortunately, society doesn't think that the church has much credibility or that they can speak about any of the important issues of the day. And friends, that really hasn't changed. The famous German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, after the horrors of World War II, there was just this sort of wondering and questioning about what's the role of the church? What are we supposed to do now? And in reflection on this post-World War II German society, Moltmann writes, many, these are pastors, abandon the study of theology or their ministry as priests and pastors and their religious orders and studied sociology, psychology or revolution to work amongst the wretched of our society because they felt that in this way they can contribute more to solving the conflicts of this fragmented society. How depressing is that? It's like people thought, well, there's no relevance of the church right now. We can't use the church at all for anything. But friends, if Genesis 1 teaches anything, if the, the Bible teaches us anything, being created in the image of God means that we have gifts that reflect our creator. And we're meant to use those gifts to bless the whole world. There was, uh, in World War II, the American theologian, Landon Gilkey, he was thrown into a Japanese internment camp. So he was living in China. And when the Japanese invaded, Landon Gilkey wrote a book called The Shantang Compound. The Shantan compound, it was basically this experiment of like, what do you do when you take a society of people and lump them into this terrible situation? What happens? And, and Gilkey tracks the progress of these American, mostly missionaries, expat, all these different Westerners lumped together and how they sought to rebuild society. And at the beginning, Gilkey, by his own admission, he's like, oh, I wasn't really much of a Christian. And he said the missionaries there would host a church service every Sunday morning. And he'd walk past and he goes, I just had so many things to do, trying to feed people, house people, shelter them. I just thought, what a waste of time this is. What a complete and utter waste. Then he began to realize as stealing increased because people are starving, as violence, as lying, as all these terrible things started to happen in this in this prison compound, 
Gilkey, as he begins to track towards coming to faith, he says, I began to see that without moral health, a community is as helpless and lost as it is without material supplies and services. This was the deepest lesson. This week in home groups, you have the opportunity to complete the, the free shape questionnaire. And when you do that, I really, my prayer is, and all I pray as a pastoral team is that you'll say, hey, I'm gifted in this way. I can serve God in this capacity. And being saved to serve, it doesn't just mean, well, I can jump on a morning tea roster on Sunday, which is really, really good. I'm not saying not to do that. But I want you to think about it more holistically. How can your body be a living sacrifice? How can we as a body together here at the centre use this facility that we have, which is just phenomenal, to transform the community around us? If a group of pastor, his wife, another missionary and a few others can start an English centre bakery, a cafe, a sewing school, a drug rehabilitation program, in the midst of a country where it's illegal to openly proclaim Jesus and see lots of people come to faith, to be this light in the community of darkness, how much more can we accomplish, friends? How much more can we use our spiritual giftings not just to come here on a Sunday morning and then come to church and then go home, but to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to connect with our community. To actually see that it's amazing that we have inflatable world next door, that we can rub shoulders with our community. We're not some holy huddle hidden away, but that we are, like the Apostle Paul says, not ashamed of the gospel. And so uh, this week, after you do your shape course, you show a shape questionnaire in small groups. We're going to explore next Sunday ways for us to serve our giftings. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you are the creator and sustainer of life. And that, Lord, you have gifted each of us uniquely and differently. And Lord, you've called us to, to serve you with our giftings, in order to, so that people may know you. Lord, I just pray that as a body together, use our giftings to be a blessing to this community around us, so people will know the life-changing, transformative power of the gospel, that people can see that it is relevant to their lives. Jesus is the answer. So Lord, use us as broken, humble vessels to be your hands and feet. In your name we pray all of this. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.